the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I remember at the time just thinking, oh my gosh, she's so cute and friendly and laughing and just looked like someone that you would want to be friends with. She was like a person that just kind of glowed. I don't know how to describe it, but she just seemed like an amazing person. And it wasn't until you know, they said her name on the news that it like, oh my gosh, that's that same girl, I think. And I just cried because I knew that's got to be her. You know, that's got to be the same Sydney that I knew. And I can remember just crying and just thinking how, how horrible that was that, you know, her life was snuffed out in such a, a horrible way. That's the thing that's just so, you know, awful to think about this little, you know, she's probably a hundred pounds, little tiny, 20 or 21 year old girl with this creepy guy you know that she was fighting him off and doing her best to try to save herself and you know she really didn't have a chance welcome to the first degree the true crime podcast that you might end up on my name is jack vanek i'm sitting here with alexis linkletter how you doing today lex i'm doing great how are you doing jacqueline I'm doing good, you know. I'm I'm feeling randy. It's the sun is shining. It's starting to get a little bit like brighter and lighter outside. I am ready for the winter to be done. Me too. I'm excited. We have some exciting months coming up. Hell yeah. We are just talking about Lex's boyfriend Matt's gonna help us do a few little engagement photos that we're planning a little photo shoot for. I'm very excited. Yes. It's gonna be so fun. We'll send some BTS stuff maybe in our Patreon because I don't know how many of our regular fans really care about this, but I feel like our firsty firsties would get a kick out of it. Yeah, for sure. It'll be fun. We'll capture some yeah. good stuff. Okay, so today, do you want to just get into the day? Yes, please. Today is February 22nd, and it is Be Humble Day. It's also George Washington's birthday. Okay. Founding father vibe. Founding father. National Cook a Sweet Potato Day. So if you are in the mood for some fries, maybe they should be a sweet potato fry. Okay. We had some of those last night. We did, and they were delicious. I usually don't like a sweet potato fry, but it is also, and this is the best day, National Margarita Day. Okay. Love me some margs. You know that. Go get yourself a nice tasty marg and it's also walking the dog day so lots of fun days for everybody to uh be a part of i think definitely well i think that's enough of that because we're gonna get right into this case so let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you In the entire world, there are about 8 billion people. That's difficult to fathom. Every second, 18 new people are born. That's 259 babies every minute and 385,000 per day. There are so many people in the world that statistically, some are going to be similar to you, like shockingly similar, almost like a carbon copy or a doppelganger, if you will. They grew up in the same religion as you. They graduated from the same college as you in the exact same year. They worked the same summer job as you. And they got engaged at the same time as you. By random chance, you and another person might have walked the same life path step for step in sync for years without ever realizing it. 
you may only have deviated from each other in the smallest of choices, what you ate for dinner, the movie you watched that evening, or even where you pulled over on a busy highway while having car trouble. But these small choices matter. They make you unique, one of a kind, or at least one of eight billion. And sometimes these small choices, they're dangerous. They seem innocent enough, but through no fault of our own, they become the difference between life and death. So we begin today's case on September 26th of 1983. So we're at the height of bright spandex, fingerless gloves, and massive shoulder pads. What a time for fashion. In music, Billy Joel's Tell Her About It led the charts, followed closely by Bonnie Tyler's smash hit Total Eclipse of the Heart. And as for movies, Michael Keaton's Mr. Mom topped the box office, along with Tom Cruise's Risky Business. And in the U.S., Ronald Reagan was president and the Cold War was colder than ever. Tensions became especially high when on September 1st, the Soviet Union shot down a plane carrying travelers from New York City to Seoul, South Korea. And according to the Soviet Union, they mistook the civilian aircraft for a military spy plane. All 269 passengers and crew members died. That is crazy such a tragedy. And the setting for today's case is Parley's Canyon in northern Utah, specifically an Interstate 80 off-ramp at the top of the canyon known as Parley's Summit. It's about 80 miles east of Salt Lake City. So picture a six-lane highway winding through rocky cliffs and greenery. Both Parley's Canyon and Parley's Summit were named after Parley Parker Pratt. He explored the area in the early 1800s. Parley was also an important leader of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints movement, also known as LDS or Mormonism. And Parley's lived a fascinating life. He was a polygamist. He had 12 wives, fathered 30 children, and was the great-great-grandfather of Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney. And in 1857, Parley was murdered by his 12th wife's angry ex-husband. And like Parley, over 2 million Utah residents are raised in the LDS church. And that includes our first degree for today's case named Tammy, which is kind of an interesting coincidence because Tammy is actually not from Utah. Since her family was in the military, she spent her childhood moving all across the United States. Throughout Tammy's life, her faith has been really, really important to her. She attended an LDS college in Idaho, and she was a counselor for Mormon-centered youth camps. But we'll get into all of that a little bit later. But for now, we're going to jump to 1984, when 22-year-old Tammy settled down in Utah with her then-husband. She was a wife, homemaker, and soon-to-be mother. I'm an Army brat. I lived in Idaho as a little kid, and we lived in Washington and California and Oklahoma. And then I went back to Idaho to go to college. I lived in Montana for many years and raised my family in Montana, but I've been down here in Utah for about nine years. In 1984, I was just 22 years old. I was still very young. I had just got married the year before, and this was my first husband. I've been married to someone else for 29 years. We were stationed at Hill Air Force Base, Utah, which is just a little bit north of Salt Lake. It's between Salt Lake and Ogden. My first husband was in the Air Force, and we moved there in April of 84, One day, Tammy was listening to the Salt Lake City news station, and that's when she learned that a criminal named Wesley Allen Tuttle had escaped from the Utah State Prison. As Tammy listened to the news report, she became increasingly concerned. 
After all, the prison was only about an hour's drive away from her house, way too close for comfort. So what if Tuttle was heading her way? Authorities speculated that Tuttle might try to flee the country into Canada, using the exact same route Tammy and her husband were going to take to visit his family during an upcoming trip to Spokane, Washington. Wesley Allen Tuttle had escaped. So it was his escape from the Utah State Prison that caught my attention. And the fact that he was originally from Spokane, Washington, that was kind of creepy because my husband was from Spokane, Washington. So it's just kind of this weird thing. And then the thing that was also really disconcerting to me is we were going up to Spokane for a trip. And I was about six months pregnant. I was pregnant with my first daughter. And I remember, because they said when he escaped, they talked about him being from Spokane, Washington, and that he could possibly be traveling up to Spokane and maybe trying to get across the Canadian border, which is pretty close to Spokane. And, you know, we would be traveling basically the same route that he likely would have taken. At the time, I remember just feeling so scared, and it might be because I was you know, pregnant and maybe more protective because I had a little baby inside there. But thinking, you know, what if we see this guy? You know, what if what if we run into him? You know, just all those kind of scary thoughts. And like everywhere we'd stop, you know, I'd be really careful, just really watching and and, you know, making sure we kept our doors locked, all those sorts of things, because I thought maybe we're going to run into this, you know, this scumbag. And the news story that Tammy was listening to on that day went on to explain that Tuttle wasn't just any old regular criminal. He was a brutal, convicted murderer. Only the year before, he had killed a 21-year-old woman. And that woman was Sidney Ann Merrick. Our first degree Tammy knew that name sounded familiar. But surely, it couldn't be the same Sidney, could it? It hit me like a ton of bricks. I was shocked. I was saddened. I cried. I mean, I really admired this girl. I thought she was lovely and, and wonderful, and it wasn't until they said her name on the news that it, like, oh my gosh, that's that same girl, I think. And they did say that she was a very petite, strawberry blonde. I just cried because I knew that's got to be her, you know, that's got to be the same Sydney that I knew. And they said she was from Idaho somewhere. And anyway, I just did research, I guess, you know, it would have been a lot easier with the internet, but I found out it was the same girl that I had worked with. And I can remember just crying and just thinking how horrible that was that, you know, her life was snuffed out in such a a horrible way. Tammy knew Sydney. They went to college together. They worked as camp counselors together and they shared their Mormon faith together. And up until that exact moment, Tammy just assumed that Sydney was somewhere out in the world living her best life, thinking she'd probably gotten married and had a family of her own, just as she had. Tammy had no idea that Sydney had been murdered, and now Sydney's killer was on the lam. Tammy was bewildered. Right, and this was before anybody could just go onto the internet and Google a news story. So of course, Tammy had a million questions, and I'm sure you do as well. Like, why had Tuttle killed Sydney? How had he escaped from prison? Would he be captured before he made it across the country's border? And who else would be hurt in the process? To answer all these questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. Sydney Ann Merrick was born on May 22nd of 1963 to her father, Clarence Pete, and her mother, Verna. With five brothers, Sydney was the only daughter in the family. And they all grew up on a farm in the super small town of Bruno, Idaho. 
only 500 people lived up there, and eight of them were Sydney's immediate family members. So naturally, Sydney's family was close, and they affectionately called her Sid as a nickname. And every Sunday, Sydney's family went to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints together. So those who knew Sydney described her as spunky and intelligent. She was kind and always did the right thing, even when it was hard. Her dynamic personality and infectious smile made everyone's day a little bit brighter. I remember she was like a person that just kind of glowed. I don't know how to describe it, but she just was friendly and sparkly and sweet and just everything that I could tell about her, just watching her more from afar, she just seemed like an amazing person. From 1976 to 1980, Sydney attended Rimrock High School. And while most of us barely survived our teenage years, Sydney really thrived. She was on the student council, she ran track, wrote for the newspaper, edited the school yearbook, and was active in the National Honor Society. And she also loved the fine arts. She sang in the glee club, the honor choir, the swing choir, and was in the drama club. Sydney was beloved by all for her perky attitude and great work ethic. And in her senior year, Sydney's classmates crowned her homecoming queen. Following high school, Sydney went to college in Rexburg, Idaho. At the time, it was a two-year institution owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And our first degree, Tammy, went to the same college. And that's where Tammy and Sydney first crossed paths. It's about half an hour north of Idaho Falls. At the time, it was called Rick's College. It was a two-year college. Now it's a four-year college, and it's called BYU-Idaho. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints owns it, and it certainly was kind of a religious, there was certainly that whole influence of the Mormon church. You know, everyone pretty much were LDS that went to college there, but it was an accredited school. I I got a two-year degree there, and it was a great experience. I loved going to college there. Tammy and Sydney shared some mutual friends, and that's how Tammy came to know of her. My first exposure that I can remember, she was on a date with someone I knew, And I remember just seeing her and watching her kind of from across the room. And I remember at the time just thinking, oh, my gosh, she's so cute and friendly and laughing and just looked like someone that you would want to be friends with. She caught my attention. In 1982, Tammy and Sydney were both counselors at the same week-long youth conference for LDS teens. There were only about 20 counselors, so the two were in the same room a lot of the time. They each supervised small groups of teens during a week of religion-based activities. So we're talking dance classes, skits, sports, and spiritual services. So if you're listening out there and you've been to any sort of a church camp when you're younger, it's kind of similar to that. It was the next summer, like a year and a half later, that we were both counselors for this, especially for youth program, EFY, and I can remember being like in a training with her and thinking, oh, that's that Sydney girl. Oh, she's so cute. And oh, I bet she'll be a great camp counselor and things like that. So even though Tammy and Sydney never formed a true real friendship, Tammy recognized a kindred spirit in Sydney. Their lives, their choices had been very similar up to this point. And the two young women were so alike in so many other ways and crossed paths frequently. What I would say in this particular situation is I had a lot of things in common with her. We were the same age, both little goody-two-shoes Mormon girls at a church college. You know, there was all these things in common, and it was like this could have happened to me or one of my good, you know, like my college roommates that I was especially close to. I don't recall ever 
talking to her at that point or having any interaction other than just seeing her, but it had a profound impact on me personally with her death and everything. After college, Tammy and Sydney went their separate ways. Tammy was newly engaged, and she and her fiancé moved to Oklahoma to be near her family. I had finished college, and my parents were still in Oklahoma. My dad was stationed in the military in Oklahoma. And I had gone home, and my fiancé went to Oklahoma with me, and then we got married in 1983 in Oklahoma. I got married in May, and she was killed, I think they said, in September. So I wasn't anywhere close to where this was happening at the time. I was, you know, halfway across the country. So I wasn't aware of any of it. And she wasn't even on my mind at all. Once I graduated from college, I was kind of moving on with my life and not even thinking about, you know, people there. Meanwhile, Sydney relocated from Idaho to Salt Lake City, Utah. And just like her first Greek Tammy, Sydney was also engaged. Sydney began doing administrative work for a construction company as a job. And that's why on Monday, September 26th of 1983, Sydney was driving east on I-80 through Parley's Canyon from Salt Lake City to a Deer Valley ski resort in Park City. But just as Sydney made her way up to Parley's summit at around 2.30 p.m., her car broke down. But Sydney probably wasn't surprised by this turn of events. Her white Datsun sedan overheated constantly. And this stretch of the highway was particularly steep, inclining over 7,000 feet above sea level. So it kind of made sense that Sydney's car didn't have the power to make it over Parley's summit. Frustrated, Sydney pulled over. All she needed was somebody to help her get over the summit. Then she could figure out the rest from there. 45 minutes later, a truck driver stopped to inspect his brakes. And while he stopped, he spotted Sydney's white car on the off-ramp and noticed something strange. There appeared to be two legs protruding from the front passenger side door. And as a truck driver approached this white sedan to see how he could help, he started to make more realizations. The situation was far beyond anyone's help because the woman in the car, 21-year-old Sydney Ann Merrick, she was dead. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. So I think that we all know if you're feeling your best, you feel like you can do great things, you can take over the freaking world. But sometimes life gets you bogged down and makes you feel overwhelmed and it makes you feel like you can't show up and be the best version of yourself. So working with a therapist can help you get closer to the best version of you. And when you feel empowered, you're more prepared to take on everything that life throws at you. I know when I'm not feeling my best, talking with somebody makes me feel so much better. Getting out there, maybe exercising, uh, you know, it makes you feel better. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part is you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So if you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash first degree today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash first degree, betterhelp.com slash first degree. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program and it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. 
Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Sydney's autopsy revealed that she had suffered seven deep stab wounds to her neck and her chest. One stab wound penetrated her heart and would have been fatal on its own eventually. But with the other stab wounds, medical experts believe that Sydney died within 15 minutes. And although the medical examiner couldn't confirm it, it appeared that Sydney might have been sexually assaulted. And initially, the police have zero suspects. There was blood in Sydney's car, on her body, and under her nails, but no clues that could help them identify the killer. Because remember, this is 1983 we're talking about. DNA testing wouldn't be used until 1986, and then it would be even later before it started to be widely used, as we all know. And even then, it would take years for the courts to accept it as reliable evidence. So the situation is kind of grim. Utah residents were completely stunned by Sydney's violent death. A young woman was targeted, murdered, and probably raped with no apparent explanation or suspects. So the public obviously wanted answers, and they wanted them now. As a result, investigators were highly motivated to find the perpetrator. 
so the sheriff's office asked the public for help. The section of the I-80 was heavily trafficked and slow-moving, and Sydney's car had been visible from both sides of the freeway. Law enforcement officials were certain that somebody had seen something. And luckily, they were right. Multiple people had actually seen Sydney's car being towed up Parley Summit by a truck. And this wasn't just your typical average pickup truck. This was a very unique looking service truck, specifically a black Chevy with a 30 foot flatbed trailer and a bug screen with a company name printed on it. And the company was Apache. So according to eyewitnesses, the truck towed Sydney's car for a while. Then it stopped at an off-ramp. There, a man exited the truck and approached the driver, Sydney, who had remained in her car. And one witness said that the man kissed Sydney, who looked uncomfortable. Another witness stated, it looked to me like they were just goofing off, I guess. Looked like he was poking her and tickling her, that type of deal. And then I saw they were on the other side of the passenger door. And I noticed him look like he shoved her in the car backwards. That's when I realized what was happening was violent. Since witnesses had reported that a business's name was literally printed on the truck, the police took the most logical next step. They called the business. And this is how they learned that Apache Oil Field Services owned only one black truck like the police were describing. And on Monday, September 26th, it had been assigned to a guy who worked for them, a 33-year-old man named Wesley Allen Tuttle. Tuttle had been transporting materials from Ventura, California to Evanston, Wyoming, and he was using a route that goes right through Parley's Canyon in Utah. Wesley Allen Tuttle was born on September 2nd of 1951, and not much information is available about his early life. We do know he was originally from Spokane, Washington, but he didn't stay there long. By age 23, he was in Boise, Idaho, where he was caught selling drugs to high schoolers, and he specialized in the highly addictive sleeping medication, Secobarbital, which is now banned in the United States. So classy stuff early on. And on February 9th of 1975, undercover police officers purchased drugs from Tuttle on a corner near the high school. When they attempted to arrest him, Tuttle led them on a high-speed chase. Nobody was injured, but Tuttle now faced reckless driving in addition to his drug charges. And we don't know how much jail time Tuttle received as a result of this. But we do know that on May of 1975, 25-year-old Tuttle escaped prison for a month. He was caught and went back to prison. After that sentence, Tuttle was incarcerated again for theft and burglary. And like before, we don't know how long he was in prison for that offense. But if there's one takeaway here, it's that Wesley Allen Tuttle was no stranger to crime or escaping prison. At some point, Tuttle married and had children, and by September of 83, he'd moved his family from Boise to Evanston, Wyoming. And there he began working as a truck driver for his brother's company, Apache Oilfield Services. Tuttle was assigned the black truck with the word Apache printed on its bug screen, and this was the same truck Tuttle was driving when he saw Sydney marooned on the side of the highway. They found her, I guess it was just off of like a exit ramp or something. It was still pretty close to the highway and she had been stabbed. And at the time, I think they had said that she had been sexually assaulted and she fought him. I mean, they could tell that she had put up a fight. And that's the thing that's just so, you know, awful to think about. This little, you know, she was probably 100 pounds, little tiny 20 or 21 year old girl with this creepy guy. You know, that she was fighting him off and doing her best to try to save herself. And, you know, she really didn't have a chance. You know, he took advantage of that. And 
And, you know, I'm sure we were more trusting in those days if some guy pulled up and said, oh, yeah, I can help you. I'll pull you. I'll, I'll tow your car or whatever. There's, and that was way before cell phones or anything, you know. Probably any of us would have accepted that help when you're kind of desperate. And, you know, he took advantage of that. And it's so, so sad. Sydney, who was always happy to help everyone, trusted a stranger would help her when she needed it. And there probably were dozens of people on that highway who would have helped her. But in an act of random chance, the wrong person pulled over. The whole thing, when you think about it, is really heartbreaking. Five days after Sydney was brutally murdered, Tuttle was proceeding with life as normal. He and his family lived in a trailer in the truck yard of his brother's company, Apache Oiled Field Services. So, quote unquote, going to work for Tuttle was essentially stepping outside. Exactly. And when Tuttle began working on Friday, September 30th, his coworker let him know their boss, Wes Wilson, wanted to talk with him. So Tuttle went over to the office trailer and called up his boss, Wes. So Wes wanted to know if anything weird had happened on the way back from California that Monday that Sydney was killed, like a minor accident or anything at all that Tuttle might want to share. But Tuttle said no. But the inquisitive Wes persisted. He'd just gotten off the phone with the sheriff's office, and police officers had described Tuttle's work vehicle to a T. So Wes knew that Tuttle wasn't telling the whole story. Wes asked Tuttle again if there was any possible way that he could have cut in front of somebody or accidentally ran them off the road that Monday. But Tuttle continued to deny everything. Wes then informed Tuttle that the police were going to come take a look at Tuttle's truck later that day, and the two hung up. And then Tuttle packed his shit and got the hell out of Dodge. Because when police finally arrived at Apache Oilfield Services two hours later, Tuttle, his family, and his trailer home were gone. Tuttle was on the run, and he was headed north. Law enforcement officials suspected he was going to try and hop the border into Canada, like we said. So to stop that, the police released a description of Tuttle to the public. They announced that he was their prime suspect for Sydney's murder and requested any tips for his capture. And around this time, Tuttle's boss, Wes, spotted him while driving on the highway. And apparently they stopped and spoke for a little bit. And all that seems really weird, but okay. Tuttle continued on driving away and... Wes, I guess, just talked to him. (laughs) Really helpful. So Tuttle told Wes what he actually did know. So he said he knew of an accident that happened on Monday during his trip from California to Wyoming. That day, he pulled over to Parley Summit to check on something, he said. And that's when he said he saw a white car with a girl's dead body inside. Tuttle then claimed that upon seeing the girl he vomited, got back in his truck and drove away. And he explained that he didn't call 911 because of his criminal history and he was worried that he might look guilty. Right. And he also told Wes during this conversation that he had to go to take care of his family. Then he turned himself over to the police. Sounds suspicious, but to everyone's surprise, he actually did do that. When Tuttle arrived in Spokane, Washington, he turned himself into the authorities. But let's not give him too much credit because he probably realized how screwed he was and decided to not flee the country. On October 7th, 11 days after Sydney's murder, FBI agents arrested Tuttle at 11.30 p.m. From there, he was transferred to the Utah Summit County Jail and held without bond. And even though Tuttle turned himself in, he still maintained that he had absolutely nothing to do with Sydney's death. But he told law enforcement officials a different story than the one he told his boss. So Tuttle's new and improved story went like this. On the Monday Sydney was discovered, Tuttle pulled over to take a nap around 2 p.m. You know, a normal truck driver thing to do. When he woke up, he figured he'd check on his tires. And that's when he saw Sydney's car about 100 feet behind his truck. 
He spotted Sydney's legs sticking out of the front passenger door and assumed somebody was fixing their car. When he approached, he realized Sydney was covered in blood. He checked Sydney for a pulse and was shocked when Sydney's hand moved. Then Tuttle fled the scene without calling an ambulance in fear that nobody would believe his innocence. It's pretty weird that in this 100% fake story, Tuttle still admitted that he let Sydney die without making any effort to help her. It's kind of yeah. a counterintuitive lie to tell when you're trying to avert blame. Yeah. For Very this weird. murder, right? So either way, it didn't matter. The police weren't buying it. And the detectives on this case really believed this was their guy. The police determined that Tuttle was lying about this timeline because it turns out he'd made a phone call to the Apache oil field services at a rest stop in Orem, Utah at 1.43 p.m. So in order to reach the off-ramp in question by 2 p.m. so he could take this alleged nap, Tuttle would have had to floor it going over 80 miles an hour in this truck. It's not possible that he got off at this off-ramp at 2 p.m. He probably got there more like 2.30 p.m., which is the exact time when all the eyewitnesses placed him there with Sydney in her car. In the exact time, Sydney was killed. So Tuttle's trial began in April of 1984, and it was a freaking mess. Tuttle's cellmate testified for the defense, but it turns out that he was just lying to receive concessions for his own sentence. The cellmate claimed that he'd been out hunting elk, and he just so happened to see Tuttle run away from Sydney's car. But the prosecution found that there was no way to see Tuttle or Sydney from the location that the cellmate had described, and they even tried using binoculars. And plus, it wasn't even elk hunting season. Right. And there was some debate over whether or not hair strands found in Sydney's car were a match to Tuttle's hair. Again, no DNA testing, so we're just comparing hair strands with microscopes and making educated guesses, right? So eyewitnesses explain that they saw a man similar to Tuttle and a vehicle similar to his in the area where Sydney was killed. But many of the eyewitnesses were unsure, and we know eyewitness testimony can be really shaky at times. And only one witness identified Tuttle as the same man they saw with Sydney on the off-ramp. His name was Matt Fisher, and he remembered Tuttle clearly because he said Tuttle cut him off in traffic. And Matt was so angry and wanted to give this guy a piece of his mind for pulling in front of him. So he like drove up next to Tuttle and yelled a few curse words at him. And then minutes later, Matt saw Tuttle pulled over on the side of the road with Sydney. So that's how he's sure it's the same person, apparently. But some witnesses said the man in question had facial hair. But Tuttle's wife testified that he'd shaved two days before Sydney's murder. So he couldn't have had the facial hair described by one of those eyewitnesses. So just a little complicated and convoluted. Oh, yeah. So Tuttle's boss discovered a large kitchen knife in the Apache yard. And the medical examiner agreed that this could have been the knife that killed Sydney. But Tuttle's lawyers argued that the knife that was found wasn't Tuttle's at all. And Tuttle's character witnesses were divided. Some called him manipulative, while others said that he was a good man. Later, the prosecuting attorney would tell the park record that Tuttle's case was the most challenging one that he had ever worked on. In May of 1984, after deliberating for four and a half hours, the jury convicted 33-year-old Wesley Allen Tuttle of first-degree murder. At this news, Tuttle, who still said he was innocent, cried. And he was sentenced to life in prison. And Tuttle could have received the death penalty, but the judge took pity on him. And he believed that Tuttle had killed Sydney during a short, unexplainable rage, and that Tuttle had never intended to kill her, which... Why would the judge say that? Never intended to yeah. kill her. She was stabbed seven times. 
Yeah. So obviously he did intend to kill her. And it's clear that Tuttle had no remorse for killing Sydney because on August 21st of 1984, Tuttle, along with convicted murderer Walter Wood and convicted robber Eugene Brady, escaped Utah State Prison. They disguised themselves as construction workers' clothing and walked out a side door. When a secretary asked what they were up to, the three said that they were just looking for their construction foreman who was in the lobby. Over 200 law enforcement officers searched the area for the three escapees. Within hours of the prison break, Tuttle's accomplices, Walter and Eugene, were captured. Eugene was found hidden in a small hole two miles south of the prison, and Walter was walking nearby. But Tuttle, he was still missing. And it was at this time, during his escape, when our first-degree Tammy first heard of him. And news of his escape sparked Tammy's interest. And Tammy, who was already a mom and homemaker, took on a whole new role. She wanted to be a bit of a detective, and she started calling around to the Salt Lake City Sheriff's Office, the Colville Police, and more. Anything to learn about Sydney and the man who took her life. Within just a very short time, I learned of her murder and his escape, and I, like, got on the phone and, you know, looked up the Sheriff's Department number, and I spent several hours just trying to find out if this was the same Sydney that I knew. And then when I talked to people, I want to say it might have been like the Colville, Utah Sheriff's Office or something trying to get more details. People were, you know, really nice and willing to tell me what they knew, what they could. You know, the case had already gone to court and he had been convicted. I do remember just feeling really sad and crying and just thinking how awful that was. While Tammy was looking into the case, more news became available about Tuttle's escape. The police suspected that he'd stolen a van and clothing from a home in Draper, Utah. They tracked Tuttle to Idaho, but then the trail went cold. For months, Tuttle continued to evade the authorities. But finally, on February 7th, 1985, he was caught in Las Vegas. At 2 a.m., Tuttle was pulled over because his truck didn't have a license plate. And he used the name Mark Eugene Van Weller, which authorities knew to look out for. The Nevada Highway Patrol called the FBI to the scene and Tuttle was apprehended. So for his escape, Tuttle was sentenced to an additional 1 to 15 years in prison. And he tried to get out of it by claiming he escaped prison because he feared for his life. And he said the other inmates were threatening to kill him, so he had to leave. But the court knew that that was nonsense. Tuttle hadn't complained to any prison officers about these supposed threats. Plus, the guy was gone for five months and never turned himself in. At this point, Tuttle's case was pretty well known because, you know, the media loves to report a prison break. But Tuttle's case was also gaining attention for another reason. Right before he broke out of prison, he submitted an appeal to the courts. He wanted them to take another look at his conviction and the sentence for Sidney's murder. But, you know, you would think when you escape prison, you kind of lose the right to appeal your conviction and your sentence. Or, you know, like at the very least, you'd have to start the process over once you're back in prison. Yeah, that would make sense, but the courts decided otherwise. They said that Tuttle probably didn't understand how his escape would affect his appeal, so they let him keep it. Wow, they really give him a lot of benefit of the doubts here. Like, I know, my God. And it's honestly super important because this appeal was about to change everything. So in it, Tuttle argued that Matt Fisher, the one eyewitness who could identify Tuttle with certainty, you remember the one who... He had a road rage exchange with on the day of Sydney's murder. He was claiming that this guy should not have been allowed to testify. 
And at the request of the police, Matt underwent hypnosis about a week after he saw Tuttle with Sydney on the I-80 off-ramp. And a clinical psychologist conducted the hypnosis while a detective asked Matt questions about Sydney and Tuttle. Tuttle's defense lawyers argued that Matt's post-hypnotic testimony was invalid. The Supreme Court of Utah determined that while maybe the psychohypnotic testimony shouldn't have been allowed, Tuttle wouldn't have been convicted if Matt hadn't testified. But the Supreme Court did notice a different issue with Tuttle's case, one that could allow him to walk free, which is terrifying. So mine and Jared's schedules have been absolutely freaking bonkers, but we're finally going to have some downtime at home. And I'm so excited to start, well, I'm so excited to have Jared start cooking because I can't cook. And we're doing that with Home Chef. I'll be a sous chef. So Home Chef makes your nightly routine so much easier and so much more exciting with a wide selection of delicious meals that arrive at your doorstep in the form of fresh, perfectly pre-proportioned ingredients and an easy to follow recipe card. And they have over 30 unique and flavorful chef curated meal options each week and Home Chef ensures your taste buds will literally never get bored. And if you're looking to master the art of cooking, you can check out their classic meal kit options, complete with chef-written step-by-step instructions. I'm going to have to follow those exactly because, like I said, I am a bad cook. And if you don't have time to cook, you can have hot, delicious meals on the table with a snap with their 15-minute recipes. So for a limited time only, go to homechef.com slash first for 75% off your first box. That is a good deal. Again, go to homechef.com slash first for 75% off. So in the state of Utah, first-degree murder must be especially heinous, atrocious, cruel, or exceptionally depraved. But the Utah Supreme Court believed that Tuttle, quote, killed Sidney as efficiently as he could. It's gross even reading that sentence at all. And uh, if you're listening and you're pissed off, you're going to get more pissed off. Yeah, I mean, that whole thing had me like nauseous. It's like, oh yeah, super efficient. Stabbing a stranger who you're pretending to help seven times. That's super efficient. Calling a murder efficient is just so disgusting to begin with. Well, especially given that they estimated it would have taken her 15 minutes to die. Like that seems pretty cruel and unusual. Like, yeah, it's infuriating. Gross. So you're about to get more mad, just like Jack said, because in 1989, Tuttle's conviction was reversed. And he was reconvicted, but this time of second-degree murder. So now Tuttle's sentence would be five years to life in prison, not life in prison. And he'd already served five years in prison. So Tuttle, hypothetically, could have been released immediately. And they keep giving this guy the benefit of the doubt. So I'm surprised he wasn't. Uh, Yeah, no shit. That's so fucking crazy. If someone ever said that about someone I loved, well, oh, they killed her as efficiently as he could. I would lose. I would lose my mind. That is so upsetting. I don't think I've ever heard of anything being described like that before it's at all. It's pretty cold. Yeah. It's so cold. And it's basically just like, it's so dehumanizing to her as a victim. It's ugh, ugh. totally. So fortunately, Tuttle wasn't granted parole. The parole bar publicly said that they were not going to let Tuttle go anytime soon. But still, obviously, many people are outraged by the court's decision to switch Tuttle's conviction. Senator Haven J. Barlow asked the legislator's legal counsel to review it. He told the Salt Lake Tribune reporters, I think if any person has to go through that agony for 15 minutes, the law ought to look at that as heinous. So he is on our page as well. 
And people who love Sydney wrote to local newspapers about this decision. Bruce Briggs, Sydney's boss at the construction company that she worked at before she died, wrote to the Daily Spectrum. He said, Sleep well, Mr. Tuttle, for you didn't truly know the person you took from this earth. And sleep well, respected justice. I'm sure when Mr. Tuttle is released, sooner under your less severe sentence, he'll try harder to meet your first degree criteria next time. Ooh, that's how I feel. Like, that's the thing. It's like, why are we saying these things that are supportive of the defendant? No, why are we just like letting him just go so leniently? It's like, dude, this guy is a very horrible person. And plus, he keeps breaking out of prison. This wasn't even the first time he broke out of prison. Like, this guy has no respect for your authority, Mr. Justice. So it's just like very frustrating to see how this unfolded. So as a result of those prison breaks that we've told you about, Tuttle was transferred to a Montana state prison. And this was in the late 90s. And guess what was happening in the late 90s? DNA testing was becoming common practice. And new laws were passed requiring all Montana inmates to submit their DNA for testing. So now Tuttle was forced to give a saliva sample, which was then put into the National DNA Database. And that's why on Monday, August 4th of 2008, 55-year-old Wesley Allen Tuttle would plead guilty to raping and murdering a 14-year-old girl named Lisa Chambers in 1982, two years before he'd go on to kill Sydney. You know the drill. We're going to take you back one more time. Lisa Lynn Chambers was born on August 24th of 1968, and she had three siblings. And just like Sydney and Merrick, Lisa was the only daughter. On November 10th of 1982, 14-year-old Lisa lived in Boise, Idaho. And at 7.15 a.m. on that Wednesday morning, Lisa was on her way to Fairmont Junior High School when she vanished into thin air. Four days later, on November 14th, Lisa's school books were found in a trash can outside of a Boise truck stop near Interstate 84. After two weeks of searching, Lisa's body was discovered. Pheasant hunters found her in a cornfield just outside of Boise on Thanksgiving Day, which is devastating. And Lisa was wearing the same clothing that she was when she'd last been seen. And the autopsy revealed that she'd been raped and then strangled with the shoelaces from her shoes. And at first, the police suspected then 31-year-old Wesley Allen Tuttle. So they suspected him because a woman had called in a tip saying that she saw a girl who may have been Lisa with an adult man next to a truck near the same field where Lisa's body was later found. And she remembered them clearly because they were helping an injured puppy. Thinking the situation was weird, the woman wrote down the truck's license plate number. And guess what? It was registered to Tuttle. And I love that she did that because if something looks fucking weird, it is. I'm sorry. If something Mm -hmm. gives you the creeps, if you see a man helping a puppy with a little girl who looks like it's not her father, call the police, write down the license plate. Because without her, they probably never would have been able to link him. No, it's so true. They did with the DNA, but they had no leads until his DNA was in this database. So it's incredible what it can do if you just like see something, say something, do something. Exactly. But sadly, the police dismissed this tip without much investigation, which is insane when you look back on how accurate it was. Totally. Because the woman reporting the tip had dementia and investigators couldn't find any evidence that Tuttle knew Lisa. So Lisa's route from her house to her school did pass right by Tuttle's house. So he would have seen her walk by every day. But none of that seemed important to police at all. Plus, they thought that the woman's sighting was too far away from Lisa's home and from her school. Right. And it's likely that Tuttle drove Lisa to the field in his truck. 
you know, the one the woman saw and wrote down the license plate for. But the authorities didn't think of that, I guess. And for 25 years, Lisa's case went cold and is such a heartbreaking thing to consider with her family. You know, it's just awful. So apparently the detectives, I mean, they held Lisa's case very close to their hearts. They revisited it often and they kept photos of her posted in their offices. So, you know, it's easy in hindsight to say, should have checked on that truck or whatever, but they obviously cared deeply about Lisa's case. In 2004, a detective had Lisa's clothing analyzed for DNA evidence. And in 2007, it was matched to Tuttle. Tuttle killed Lisa only 11 months before he murdered Sydney. For Lisa's murder and assault, Tuttle received his second life sentence. And this time, thank God, without the possibility of parole. Before his conviction in 2008, Tuttle would have been eligible for parole the next year in 2009, which is really scary. Lisa's mother was relieved that her daughter's assailant had finally been caught. And according to the Idaho Press, she said, The next time I go to the cemetery, I can tell my daughter, we found your killer. You can rest in peace, which is so sad. So sad. And our first degree Tammy wonders if Lisa and Sydney were Tuttle's only victims. After all, he wasn't imprisoned until he was in his 30s. So how many others could Tuttle have killed? I Googled it and I was like, oh my gosh, this SLB killed another girl, you know, that I had no clue about. That was not on my radar at all. A young lady who was like 14 or something, and I think it was in Boise area, and they found him from DNA because that one was in 1982, right before he killed Sydney. They make them submit their DNA, which is a, a good thing. I mean, I totally agree with that. And there was DNA in the other little girl's underpants, and they were able to connect it with him. And then I think he confessed. When I saw that, I was like, holy crap, this is a terrible man. And then, of course, my next thought is, oh, I bet he's killed a bunch more. You know, I really feel like there's usually not just one or two. It wasn't like he was 19 years old or something and just getting started. Although Sydney was a distant figure in Tammy's life, her death resonated with Tammy. And it made her think differently about safety, especially for her children. I certainly admired her from afar. And just the thought of she'll never have a husband. She'll never have children. She's never going to go back to school or you know, what if, and I have four children, they're all grown up now, but I had three daughters and I think it always made me so much more careful about just being careful of my surroundings and watching and, you know, keeping my car keys with me and just all those, you know, kind of self-defense things that women have to worry about. I was really careful after Sydney because I knew you know, if this could happen to her, it could happen to me or anyone else. You know, this happened to a real person. This was a murder of a, a person that I had known. My gosh, thinking of her family, you know, I can certainly put myself in their position, especially now. You know, I have adult children and I can't even imagine what some of these people have gone through, the heartache and horror. And if I think about it a lot, it can just make me sick. And I think maybe that's just part of being a human is that we care about people, hopefully, and we want to look out for each other, hopefully. And that is the thing is that you don't have to be best friends with someone to still feel that loss. 
Today, Wesley Allen Tuttle is incarcerated in a Utah prison, but some could argue that prison isn't good enough for Tuttle, that he hasn't received enough punishment for the untold harm he's caused to Sydney, to Lisa, and probably to others. And Tammy's religion helps her have faith that Tuttle will receive the justice he deserves. Mormons or Latter-day Saints, we do have a strong belief in, you know, that this isn't the end when we die and that we have the opportunity to to live as families again and be together and that, you know, yes, bad things can happen to people, but, you know, it's not the end, I guess, when someone dies, whether it's a murder or dies naturally, that there is that hope and that belief that there's more than, than this world. And just as there could be more than this world for Tuttle, Tammy believes Sydney has received the peace she deserves. That's how I envision her is, you know, she's this amazing being. She's an angel. God is using her in some other way. And her life was snuffed short here. But I really, I have to hang on to those feelings that there is another existence that will happen after this one. In my career as a social worker or a therapist, you know, you hear horrible, horrible things that people do to each other. And I do have a strong belief that God is the one that will judge us. I don't have to be the one to judge someone else's behavior. Heavenly Father will be the one to judge them, and He knows, and everyone will get what they need. So, like, if they haven't found a murderer of somebody, you know, you hear these stories of of people missing or murdered, and they don't know who did it. I have a very strong belief that God knows who did it, and there will be a judgment And I'm glad I don't have to be the one to judge him. The U.S. justice system is supposed to judge those who have done wrong, but it's not perfect. Depending on the day, sometimes it's downright flawed. From police officers all the way to Supreme Court judges, mistakes can and are made. Eyewitness accounts are overlooked or incorrect. Convictions are reversed. There are a million ways that one small misstep could allow someone to literally get away with murder. But religion... Religion is something that surpasses the justice system. It is beyond this mortal plane. No matter what religion you do or don't subscribe to, there is no arguing that religion offers people hope. Hope that no matter what evil people get away with here on earth, they won't get away with it forever. Well, huge thank you to Tammy for being our first degree for this story. If you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon. We have bonus content for you over there every single week and stick around in our feed tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of killing time for you. And remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are Court Documents, the Salt Lake Tribune, South Idaho Press, Desert News, Associated Press, The Times News, The Daily Herald, Ancestry, Find a Grave, Utah Department of Corrections, The Billings Gazette, The Park Record, and The Idaho Statesman. And as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source.